0: make this an entertaining talk. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord as it came again to the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If you haven't gotten the gist of this verse by now, hopefully it will become more familiar. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the strong man boast in his strength, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. Let's pray. Once again we come, and uh, we've come full circle with many stops along the way in the book of Revelation, and we ask, Lord, now that you would complete our journey this day. Not just the talks, but maybe in some ways seal up uh, the things that we've encountered or learned or entrusted to you. And so uh, a lot of people uh, have gotten some freedom from things that they were carrying when they first started this retreat. And and now, Lord, you're carrying them through to even greater freedom. So we bless that and ask for more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, just to recap, we're going through the book of Revelation. The theme is uh, strength in trying times, lessons from the book of Revelation. We started off session one saying that if you're in some sort of trial, it's important to know your Lord. And we covered that in Revelation chapter one. Part two, know your situation. We covered that in Revelation chapter seven. This morning's session, we said, Know your enemy. That was from Revelation 13 and 17. And this is part four now, know your destiny, Revelation 21, 1 to 3, 15 and 16, 22 to 23, and Revelation 22, 1 through 3. It really is the vision of the new Jerusalem. Um If you're thinking, okay, is there any more sessions? There's no other chapters in Revelation, so this is it. We are done. Uh, We'll go to the next slide here. I mentioned in a previous talk, I think it was last night, that there was this procedure that the book of Revelation does use. We call it a spatial dualism, the opposition between looking at the world from the perspective below, which is really what we see with our natural eyes, and then looking at the world from the perspective of above through the eyes of faith and the book of Revelation constantly shows you both in order to teach you this is how to view it from God's transcendent point of view. That's what we did on uh, last night. I did want to for this last talk talk about another dualism. Scholars will talk about a temporal dualism that which relates to time rather than to space and all that means is this. The book of Revelation asks that you interpret what is happening in your life now in terms of what is yet to come. So not above and below, but now and the future. And in some ways, uh, the book of Revelation is trying to say, God sees the whole, both what you are now and what you shall be. And very often he uses what you shall be to give you a little bit of a nudge in how you ought to view your circumstances now. Um, I was watching here last night. I wasn't the only one that was going around praying for people. As you followed my lead or followed my suggestion, I said, hey, huddle up, you know, pray for one another, and, and a lot of you did that. I just want to let you know uh, what I do in ministry time, in praying for people, is something that anybody here can learn how to do. Uh, matter of fact, we try to train people at our church so that it's not just the staff or the elders who are doing the praying. We get people who are trained in ministry to do that as well. One thing, if you're interested in, in doing this for people, is you can lay hands on them and you can just declare uh, what is their destiny. Now, I have to you have to understand, it's not just you that's talking, okay? In settings like last night, the Holy Spirit is in the room. And usually when a person comes asking for prayer, the Holy Spirit is on them. They are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And usually if you see some emotion in them, that is, that is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. People respond emotionally when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. And as they are receiving in prayer, maybe sometimes their eyes are closed or their hands are out, what you say over them is more than just you talking. When you're in receiving mode, very often what comes out of the prayer's mouth, you're receiving it like it's the word from the Lord. So let's say if there's a fellow named Alex who is coming forward and asking for prayer, or he's coming to you and asking for prayer, you can just lay a hand on Alex and say, Alex, I bless you in your moment right now. You are coming uh, and bringing before the Lord whatever his issue is, I need a job, I need a girlfriend, or whatever it is, you can say, I bless you now in your, in your coming before the Lord. There's a faithfulness on you, Alex. And then you might say something like this. I just knocked off my earpiece. You might say, and as he's receiving, okay, he's in a real good place spiritually, you could say, I declare now in Jesus' name, Alex, that this is your destiny. That is to say, this posture that you are taking right now is the type of posture that you will be taking for the rest of your life, for the next 70 years. This is who you are. No matter where your Christian life goes, no matter how many ups and downs, this will be a baseline experience to which you will always return. This is a signature moment in your life, Alex, and this is your destiny. Now, if you say something like that, okay, and Alex is there and he's holding on his hands, he's receiving, he begins to just swallow that up, okay? You receive words just like you receive food, and you can spit out words just like you can spit out food. And so a word like that is a very powerful word, especially if he receives it. And it sort of lodges in his heart and lodges in his soul. He begins to adopt that as his destiny. And sure enough, if the words are right, if he goes astray in his life, he will always remember that moment in the seat where you prayed with him and said, this is your destiny. Okay, words of destiny have that effect. Okay, if you kind of know where the Lord intends for you to go, or the end point of the arc or narrative of your life, you're able to interpret anything in the middle of your life correctly. Let me just give you one real quick example, all right? This is a personal thing. If you stopped me and bought me a cup of coffee and said, okay, Frank, what are the biggest concerns on your mind right at this moment? I might say something like this. Well, I started this new dean's job a year ago. I was a happy professor a year ago. Now I'm an administrator responsible for all these other things. I kinda wish I'm gonna I would get the hang of this job. You know? I keep wondering if I'm gonna get the hang of this job. What else is on your mind nowadays, Frank? Uh well I kinda wanna write this book. I've been working on it for the past five years, sitting on my shelf. Every time I think I got some spare time to work on it, I gotta go to a soccer game or a ballet recital. You know, I sometimes wonder if I'm ever going to finish this book. Yeah, what else is on your mind? Oh, well, the house is a mess, and there's all sorts of things I gotta fix. My wife's not gonna do it. I don't want to hire anybody to do it, so it just kind of dangles, and you know, I keep wondering if I'll ever get the house in shape. Okay, so I just named three things, and to be honest, that's really what's on my mind right now. Okay, but here's the point. Nowhere is it written that I am destined to get the hang of an associate dean's job. Like, that's what God has made me for, and that's the end point of my life. Nor is it written that the destiny of my life is to write a book, and nor is it written that the destiny of my life is to have a nice, fixed up house. Okay? So if none of those are the endpoints of my life, then why am I preoccupied with these things that are just sort of uh, forays, you know, little little forays off the real path? It is written, Romans eight twenty eight, okay, that I've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. All things work for the good for that end purpose. So at the end of time, the Lord's not going to ask me about my job or my book or my house. He will ask me, okay, Frank, have you finally learned to live for me and not for yourself? And so when I think about all the things that preoccupy me, the real important thing in which all of it distills is that final endpoint. Okay, am I becoming like Jesus? Uh, Frank, are you finally learning to live in confidence instead of in fear? That is the end point. That is my destiny. Okay? And I like it when people pray over me and speak that destiny because it sets me back aright. You know, where I'm getting confused and, you know, flustered by life, it somehow sets things straight. Okay, so that's the deal with this final lecture. What do people need to know to get through trying times? They need to know their destiny. Got it? All right, so here we go. The big concept or the big vision, and remember, we have to be right brained. You know, Jesus doesn't literally have a two edged sword sticking out of his tongue, right? Out of his mouth. You have to see that it means that he's the protector. Okay. The vision that we're presenting for this final talk is something called the New Jerusalem. Now, uh, forgive me for, I don't know, sharing my uh, bias here, but I think it's very interesting that the endpoint for all of us collectively, is a city. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is a city. I am a city boy. Okay, I grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, went to Stuyvesant High School, uh, loved the New York Yankees. Sorry for all you uh, Met fans. Uh, that, that didn't go very well, did it? <laughs> the Bible starts in a garden, my wife loves gardens, but it ends in a city. I've been in many uh, you know, youth group meetings and stuff like that where people would say, everybody, let's go around and name the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And one person will say, oh, the Grand Canyon, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Or a starry, clear night, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And they get to me and they say, well, what about you, Frank? The Manhattan skyline, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, Now, I'm making a big deal out of this because, uh, to me, cities are about activity. Cities are about hustle and bustle. There's people moving all over the place. You know, there's things going on, recreational activities, cultural activities, economic activities. There's all sorts of things going on. It is a place where a civilization is being built and that's kind of where the action is for me. Okay, I want you to just keep that in mind because the end point uh, for all of us is not some static, I don't know, angelic, ethereal kind of existence. It'll be, it'll be something not unlike here. It'll be perfect, sanctified. But just like life on earth is about building an activity, so also the New Jerusalem will be that too. So hold that thought until we get to the end. Okay, let's go on. So, first of all, you're going to the New Jerusalem. You're created to be part of the New Jerusalem. And as I said before, interpret the unfolding of your life not according to whether it aligns with your vision, but whether it aligns with the vision of this final destination. We, uh, you know, counsel all sorts of students who go through life, and uh, especially if they're immigrants like I was, the big vision imposed upon their life is the American dream, right? Uh, my parents came from China. Uh, from poor villages in China, they came to America so that I could have a better life, which means making more than a professor's salary. Okay, <laughs> all right. This is the thing that I was—I received when I was little. It, it took a little bit of meandering to decide that that particular arc and that particular narrative that my parents had for my life wasn't the one that God had for my life. So every single person here, regardless of what your parents imposed upon you, has to come to some conclusion about what the grand narrative of your life is. Okay, The book of Revelation is saying it is not the American dream. Or if you're a follower of Jesus, it should not be the American dream or a comfortable life or anything else like that. Okay, That's really, really important if you're a suffering church because if you're a suffering church, you are not living a comfortable life. And if you are under the belief that you were supposed to have a comfortable life, you will be disappointed. So there is an alteration in expectations that has to take place, and the end of the book of Revelation performs that function for us. Well, how can I best grasp the concept of the new Jerusalem? As I said before, think of a city. So it's best not to think in terms of heaven. And so everything I'm describing, there is a place called heaven. It's the abode of God. It's the abode of angels. Uh, and what I'm describing is close to heaven because there is this convergence. There's a new heavens and a new earth. So heaven and earth get very, very close. But I don't want you to think in terms of heaven. Think in terms of the earth where people work and play and build a way of life. But again, with a grain of salt, heaven and earth come really close together. Jerusalem's is a city, and cities are teeming with activity, just as I mentioned before. Okay, so that's the first the thing that I want to just get across. Think in terms of the hustle and bustle of life. But the second thing is this. An analogy might help. (laughs) I just got that off the Internet here. Uh, How can I best grasp grasp the concept of the New Jerusalem? Okay. Try to think in terms of an analogy. Okay, this is Disney World. I have no idea who these people are. uh, But that's Cinderella and that's Minnie right in front of Cinderella's castle. Uh, So let's go to the next slide. Uh, what exactly do you mean when you tell somebody, I'm going to Disney World? Now, if I said to you, I'm going to Disney World, I think you'd be really happy for me, right? Whoa, that's great! You're going to love it! Okay, all right, and I'm, I'm sure you're, you're all happy for me. I'm not going to Disney World, but if I did, that would be your reaction. Uh, the analogy is uh, you're all going to the New Jerusalem, I'm going to the New Jerusalem. None of you would feel the same excitement as if I said I was going to Disney World, so let's work off the analogy of Disney World. What do, exactly do I mean when I'm going to Disney World? Well, I don't mean that I'm going to a desolate, deserted theme park. There's going to be people there, right? People that inhabit, they call them cast members, <laughs> okay, not staff. Uh, you know, there's many and... Who else lives there? Cinderella, right? Okay, I'm going to go see uh, all these people uh, that uh, inhabit uh, Disney World. Okay, what else are we talking about? A place. So there are all these familiar sights: The Dumbo ride, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Hall of Presidents. (laughs) It's been a year. I haven't been there for a long time. So, uh, all right, whatever it is. I just remember seeing George Washington go like that. So, okay, ooh, you're going to see these people and you're going to uh, go to these places. But uh, it's not quite complete to just say it's just these characters that are there and then there's these uh, sites or rides. You really are excited for me if I say I'm going to Disney World because you know that I'm bringing my family, right? So it's an event. Uh, we're creating memories, you know? Uh, Daddy works an awful lot, so the kids get to hang out with Daddy. We are... Uh, We are creating a vacation. It's this experience. It's an event. Okay, so just from that one phrase, I'm going to Disney World, I'm really talking about these three different things, and you're happy about these three different things. You look forward on my behalf to seeing these three different things. Okay, that's probably the easiest way for me to convey the notion of the vision of the the New Jerusalem. So let's go on now. And we're going to say the New Jerusalem, like Disney World... (laughs) is a people, is a place, and is an event. And if I do a good job, you'll be just as excited going to the New Jerusalem as you would be going to Disney World. Okay, the New Jerusalem is a people. We are the people. You are destined, and we'll make three points here, but the first one is this, to have, quote-unquote, arrived as Jesus' perfected bride. Now, I prayed for a lot of people. There were a lot of tears that flowed last night, and that's a good thing, ladies and gentlemen. You, you really do need to embrace the tears. Christians sometimes will shut down the tears or shut down the emotion. The Holy Spirit comes very, very powerfully. He loves to embrace his people as the emotions flow. Uh, but many of those tears are associated with failings in life. Okay, They're very deep, sad moments. Okay. That's part of life here on earth now. But remember, there's a temporal dualism that takes place in the book of Revelation. When we get to the New Jerusalem, those tears will be a thing of the past. They'll be just a distant memory. You will have arrived at a place where there are no more failings. Even in the midst of all the activity that I described, there will be no more failings. All right, let's see how that teaching comes through. Revelation 21 one to three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and her first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, that's a playoff of Ephesians five. This group, the church collectively, is called the bride of Christ. We are currently the bride of Christ, but there is a future. I don't know. Wedding day when we will be publicly presented to Christ as his bride uh, and will be a perfectly uh, presented bride and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be their God if you have trouble just visualizing the Jerusalem New Jerusalem as a bride or as a people let's take a look at this next slide there we are (laughs) Okay, Uh, that's a whole bunch of people if you can't make it out And we sort of rise up to this rather bridal image, okay? And this is the vision, or approximately, that John sees. Now again, don't get too caught up in just what appears to your optic nerve. It is impressionistic. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. That is important because if your experience is like mine, it mirrors what the Bible describes uh, the Bride of Christ to have been in the past. So here's a passage from Hosea. Those of you who know your Old Testament would know that the Hosea story is really the backstory to God's people being presented as a purified bride. Uh, when the Lord began to speak, this is Hosea 1-2, through Hosea the Lord said to him, go and take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. It's a prophetic act. So go and find Gomer, who I think was a prostitute, Take her for your wife, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So what kind of bride have we been collectively? Not just the people of Israel, but the church. Well, because of our unfaithfulness, because we go after idols, because we've forsaken our covenant with God, we are like adulterous people. That's the failings that I describe, over which many of us have shed tears. But the Bible describes a future day. Even if that is the way you are now, even if that's the way you were in the past, your destiny is not to be a failed bride. Your destiny is to be a purified bride. And so all the things that I mentioned before, Frank, will you live for me instead of yourself? Frank, will you live in confidence instead of out of fear? All All those questions will be answered in the affirmative. God is trying to say it is not a question mark. Whether uh, you will arrive or not, I will enable you to arrive. Have you ever been to a, an actual wedding? <laughs> uh, when you <laughs> watched the bride and groom get married, you kind of went, whew, they finally made it. Now, when I dis- say that, there is one couple that I know. Uh, their names are Jen and Chris. And they had the rockiest roller coaster relationship you can imagine. First of all, the, both sets of parents were opposed uh, to their dating each other. Uh, Jen ran away from home at one point because she couldn't handle the parents not accepting Chris. Uh, one time, Jen broke off the relationship because it was just too much work to stay you know, together with him, and then she came back, and then he broke off the relationship because it was too much stress, and it, you know, just went on and on and on and on and on, and then finally, when the, when the wedding day came, right, and they're both, you know, she comes down the aisle, they're both standing up there, they both immediately begin to weep, okay, like crazy, I mean, like they're bawling in front of everybody in the church, Now, for those who were not familiar with their story, you might think, "What's going on? This this is pretty emotional here." Uh, But everybody else who knew their story totally understood, and it's hard for me to describe. But every single person I saw, they were understanding, and they were—they were not put off by it. They were saying, "Go ahead and cry. You You deserve this after all you've been through. You know, get it all out. This is a victory." And uh, you take as long as you want. Now, <laughs> it was the most interesting wedding I've ever been to. But there was this sense of, Phew, this is a happy ending after all. See, now, that's what I'm trying to describe. If you have any discouragement about your Christian life, you know, am I ever going to arrive? You know, what's the end of this story going to be? I'm trying to tell you this is what it's like. You know, It's like a Jen and Chris wedding. You were an adulterous generation, and now you are here. And it even says in the next in, in, in Revelation 19, this is how you are de- how we are described. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen was given for her to wear, just like any bride wears a pretty gown. But here, the fine linen symbolically represents the righteous acts of the saints. So you will be. Decked out, we will all be decked out beautifully, but not with a literal dress. We will be clothed in righteous deeds. And many of us who cried last night cried because of our lack of righteous deeds, but they will be there. And it's not by anything that you do in your own strength or your own ability. This is your destiny as God has seen it fit to destiny. you. Uh, and here's the verse, Romans eight twenty eight We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his good purpose. That is your destiny. Amen? Okay, the next one's a little tougher. Let's take a look here. New Jerusalem is a place, not just a people, it's a place. And here's what we're going to say. The New Jerusalem is God's temple, the place of his manifest presence. Revelation 21, 15 and 16, then 22 and 23. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square... As long as it was wide, and he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,200 stadia in length. I forget how many miles that is, and as wide and high as it is long. So, same distance long, same distance wide, same distance high. A cube, in other words. Uh, He goes on, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Okay, so remember, this is the vision, but. But don't be too exact in thinking that this is a photographic reproduction. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Well, for those who need a visual, let's do the visual here. There it is. For all you Star Trek Next Generation fans, this is not the Borg. This is the New Jerusalem. All right, well, here's the uh, Bible trivia. Uh, question. Is there an object in the Old Testament that is a perfect cube? Same length, wide, high, and deep? Anybody know? The Holy of Holies. If you look at the dimensions in both the tabernacle and the temple, the tabernacle, Holy of Holies, where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, which actually represented the dwelling place of God. That's the place where God's presence was most intense. Moses heard the God's voice from in the middle of that Holy of Holies. Uh, in the tabernacle, I think it's 15 by 15 by 15 cubits. In the temple, it's 30 by 30 by 30 cubits. What's a cubit? <laughs> 18 inches, distance from your uh, elbow to your the tip of your middle fingers. Unless you're a short person like me. Well, that's a perfect cube. Okay, now what's the Bible trying to convey? Now, you understand the teaching is always indirect, okay? It's not meant for you to think in terms of a perfect cube. It's to suggest to you that the whole place, remember the New Jerusalem is a place, is the Holy of Holies all the time. No temple in that city. God is the temple. All right, now I have to explain this one concept. God is invisible, okay? Uh, and usually you can't detect him by your senses, right? But there are times when you can tell that God is present by his effects. When that happens, you say that God's presence has manifested. My senses do experience something of the presence of God. As I was praying for a number of you last night, you probably are not aware of it, but I can see, and I've prayed with enough people to know, when God is actually filling a person Now, how is that possible if God's invisible? Well, I can see actual manifestations. There are involuntary things that the human body does. Occasionally, actually very, very frequently among the people here, there is an eye flutter. (laughs) I don't know what that is. I just know that when you ask the Holy Spirit to come, very often there is this kind of shaking in the eyes. And when I see that, I'm encouraged because... That's the Holy Spirit. The human body reacts when the Holy Spirit comes in contact with it. That's one of the ways. Crying sometimes, for no reason. I don't know why I'm crying. That is another manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what it is for an individual person. When you have a collection of people in a room, sometimes you can actually sense there's a thickness to the room. There's something nice about the room. We had a lingering time yesterday, right? Okay, why do people linger? Because it's a real pleasant place to be. You know, God is scoring some big victories here. People are getting freedom here. This is the manifest presence of God. And all of you have experienced it to one degree or another. You probably not have had the language to describe it, so I'm giving you that language now. But let me see if I can just give you one other thought. I have, uh, I'll have. i tell you one story, and this will kind of set the stage for what we'll ultimately say. I was uh, part of a covenant renewal service we call it a covenant renewal service at naya college and we had all the students gather i think it was about 300 that night in partington hall and the whole idea is we were going to just renew our vows before god and we were going to do it collectively and everybody who came that night knew this was a pretty serious thing uh... the guitarist is just one guitarist who's leading the worship and everybody's singing, and it's a very rousing, exciting kind of level of singing. But then I began to notice something very, very strange. The guitarist and the worship leader just slow began to slow down and sing in more somber tones. And everybody in the congregation, okay, in unison, also just began to slow down. And it became quieter and quieter and quieter. And pretty soon, the guitarist, the worship leader, just stopped like this. And I looked, I was in the front row because I was speaking that night, and I looked behind, and everybody in the whole room just began to just bow their heads and just be silent. Now, nobody prompted them to do this. Okay, No one got up there and said, okay, we're going to be silent now. Okay, It just happened. And not only that, it remained like that for an eerily long period of time. Like, nobody was directing anything on the stage, and everybody was just fine being quiet. Nobody was fidgety, no one was restless, no one was looking around. I was the only one looking around, saying, what's going on? So I turned to the chaplain, okay, and he's also looking around too, and I said, hey, Jim, what is going on? And he said, I don't know, but it's really weird. And then I said, what should I do? Should I go up there? And he goes, yeah, you should go up there, go up there. And I go up there, and I have no idea. And no one's looking at me at all, okay? I'm up there, no one's looking at me, and I'm trying to figure out what to do about this. And it, just, it dawns upon me that something very special is going on, and this thought came in, which I shared. I said, hey, folks, when you have two lovers together, Sometimes there are very special moments where no words are necessary. They can look at each other's eyes and be very quietly confident that they are beloved. And it's a very special moment when that happens. They're not squirming, they're not uncomfortable, they're just happy to be right there with the beloved. And I said, I think that's what's happening here. And it's a very sweet, sweet, special moment that we should savor. Let's camp out here for a little bit. So I just let them sit, and they all sat in perfect silence. And I thought, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. Well, after a while, I said, okay, this is good. Now we understand what it's like just to be silent and content in the presence of God. And then I, uh, I said, okay, well, on the agenda in any covenant renewal service, is the confession of sin. Does anybody want to allow, just confess their sin? And one guy got up, confessed his sin, another person, as soon as that person sat down, it just went like this, back and forth, back and forth. People began to weep and wail and cry out. And if if I didn't step in, this would have gone on all night. And I looked at Jim, I said, what should I do? He said, well, just follow the Lord's lead. So after a sufficient number of people had gone, I actually had to jump in. And I say, okay, the Lord is pleased by our confessions. Now let's go to the actual covenant renewal, and we went along. But I need to let you know that something like that, God is present in the room. I can't see him with my eyes, but he has manifested himself. You just know that he's there. Wayne Grudem says those moments is when God is present to bless I'm not familiar with the life of this church. My hunch is that there have been moments like that in the life of this church. I'm telling you that it's called the manifest presence of God and its most poignant description in the Old Testament is associated with the Holy of Holies. So what is Revelation 21 trying to say? We are destined to be in the manifest presence of God all the time. Now, what I just described to you was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't know if I'll ever see anything like that. It came and went. I mean, it happened like eight years ago. But this will be something that will be constant and never-ending. And we are destined for that. You know, once in a while I watch, I turn around and I watch you all worship. Uh, I do this sometimes. I get lost in the worship. You know, I close my eyes, uh, I raise my hands... If there's a, someone to the right or left, I just totally forget that they're there, and it's just me and God, okay? I lose track of all space and all time. And then the song ends, and the lights come back up, and I say, oh, man, I'm back, <laughs> okay? It came to an end. And maybe you've had experiences like that. Oh, man, I'm back to earth, right? Okay, Uh The experience of being caught up in the presence of God is a never-ending thing. There's a passage in 1 Kings. Let's go take a look at that here. Just so you know, this is when the temple first gets dedicated. It does say the priest brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary in the temple, the most holy place. That's the NIV's word for holy of holies. Put it beneath the wings of the cherubim, and when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, that's God's presence, filled the temple... Of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, the NIV will say "could not perform their service," but literally in the Hebrew, it really means the priests could not stand because of the cloud. Could not stand; (laughs) they just they just felt the weight of the glory of God. Tommy Ten in his book uh, *The God Chasers* says one time he was in a service and uh, the the keyboardist is playing, and the presence of God came, and the keyboardist just began to weep over his keyboard, crying over the keyboard, and he says, you know, the music got all messed up, but nobody cared, you know, because they knew that it was the presence of God. And that's what we're trying to say, ladies and gentlemen. You are destined for that, okay? So if you've tasted, if you've tasted this fleeting moment where it's an exquisite, uh, you know, lover's kind of moment... Uh, the Bible says, "You were meant for that." Okay. Now, there's a part of there's a part of me that wants to say, even if you haven't experienced that, this is what you were meant for. There are uh, writers who like to point out a very special German word. I don't know if we have any German speakers here. So, uh, okay, we do. Okay. Well, you're gonna hate me because I'm going to butcher this, but uh, the word is zenzucht. S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. I think the S is pronounced like a Z. All right, there you go, there you go. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Zenzucht. I'll fake it till I make it. (laughs) Zenzucht. Do you know what that means? Okay, now the Germans come up with words for everything. Words that you'd never think you'd need a word for. Sehnsucht means to be homesick for a place you've never been to. Now, how is that possible? (laughs) Because if you've never been to it, there's no way that you can call it home. And if there's no way that you can call it home, how can you be homesick for it? But C.S. Lewis got a hold of this word and said, You know what? There is a sense in which all Christians should have this. You were not created to be separate and oblivious to the presence of God. You've been created, you were created to be sensitized and longing for the presence of God. So that these moments of the manifest presence of God, that is home. The New Jerusalem is your home. And you can be homesick for it, even though you've never been there. Okay, so I'm speaking of very, very strange realities. And of course, it has to be that way because we're talking about the future. But if you can grasp a little bit of that, then you have a stronger sense of your identity, of your destiny. You were not made for the things of this world. Why are you so caught up? In the things of this world. This is not your home. Cultivate the homesickness for the place you've never been to. You got that? Okay, uh, so the New Jerusalem is a place, it is a people, and finally, it is an event. New Jerusalem, what is the event? A second Eden and a new start to creation. Revelation 22 1 through 4. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river, I'm not sure how the tree is on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and its servants His servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I think it's what the last sentence is. Tree of life. Where do you see the tree of life in the Bible? One other place, ladies and gentlemen. Genesis chapter 2. That is the tree that is forbidden Adam and Eve after they fall in Genesis chapter 3. You get references, metaphorical references to it in Psalms and maybe Proverbs, but in a narrative it never appears again until the last chapter of the Bible. So at the beginning of the Bible and at the end. It's forbidden for the whole, everything in between. And it's almost like the last shoe drops, you know, like twin bookends. What was promised, held out, forbidden at the beginning, is now bestowed freely at the end. So there is some return to Eden, okay? So it is this (laughs) Borg-like cube, but it also is the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life. Now, when I say an event, I, I am trying to say something, and this is where I'm getting a little bit speculative. I hope you don't mind, but I think it's a cool thought. This Tree of Life is offered for one purpose, the healing of the nations. Now, the New Jerusalem is a new heavens and a new earth, You know, sin and death are done away with. There is no sickness. There is no illness. What type of healing could take place? Why would you need healing? And what would it look like? Well, there's no definite answer, but I have a a thought. And this is something that occurs even as I minister. Uh, One of the most painful things that people carry, even when they're totally healthy, is the pain of memories. I mentioned past failings. You have failed people, other people have failed you, right? Okay. And I think there is the possibility of healing for these memories, but there's no chance of changing the past. You know, I can say you can get over the past, but you can't you can't change the past. It has already happened. Events have happened and they're there. And it is what it is. But I think, and this is my supernaturalness coming out, that if the New Jerusalem is a city and there's lots of activity and hustle and bustle in a city, in a sense, perhaps the Lord will enable us to reenact much of our lives so that past failings can be redeemed in that we live life all over again. It's a new Eden, a new creation, sort of like a new Adam and Eve. You can start life on earth all over again, only it's a new earth, along with a new heaven. I look at my marriage, you know, not a perfect marriage. There are a lot of moments where I have failed my wife, Pauline. I was sitting with this other couple one time, and they were talking about their 10th anniversary. And I think they went to Hawaii for their 10th anniversary. And they described it as a second honeymoon and how refreshing and and wonderful it was. They said, what did you and Pauline do for your 10th anniversary? And I said, I think we went to Costco. (laughs) Gabby was one, and we were both exhausted. And I remember sitting there saying, Man, it felt bad saying that we went to Costco for our tenth anniversary, but there's never going to be another tenth anniversary. you know I mean that's it. It came and it went, and we missed the opportunity you know god i I would love to be able to go back and and take her to some place nice, you know Denny 's or something. <laughs> There is a longing for my in my heart to do this across the board, okay? I mean, I had a bad relationship with my father, you know I blamed him for most of it, but i I bet you i I did a lot of things that were not so good on my part. It would be really nice not to just receive forgiveness for that but to have a chance to. Relive it. Maybe restore it. There are leaves for the healing of the nations. And it is a new earth where life is to be lived. A new Jerusalem where life is to be built. Folks, I think in some ways the new Jerusalem mirrors our life here. You know, those of you who are married, you went through a sequence of events, right? Found your spouse, married your spouse, moved into a new house, started life together, right? Well, that's what I did. Married my spouse, moved to a new place, carved out an identity as a couple. That's, what, that's how the book of Revelation ends. Maybe we can go to the next slide here. Oh, That's the Tree of Life. I think that's from Disney. And then uh, turn to the next one here. Marry spouse, move into a new house, create a life together. Jesus is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Welcome, blessing to, those who are, to all, blessing to all who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Marry the spouse. New Jerusalem, place of God's manifest presence. New temple, that's the new house. And now the event, a new life together where we create once more under the glory of God. If you started a business, let's say you ran a business you know, for 10 years and maybe you cheated a little bit and cut corners to make it successful, you have a chance or you would have a chance to make, make a successful business under the glory of God. Think about your relationship with your kids. You know, in some ways, certain things cannot be made up in this life. But I'm holding out the hope that in the next life, in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation, where there are leaves for healing, the Lord will offer that to us as well. So the New Jerusalem is better than Disney. It's a people, it's a place, and an event. Let me share one final thought about destiny, and then we'll be done, okay? Uh, have you all had like uh, near-death experiences? Anybody here like come really close to death? I have, when I was born. Uh, When I was born, uh, the umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck three times. So the doctor actually told my mother that I was uh, blue. My face was blue uh, when I was born. didn't get uh, enough oxygen. Whenever I make mistakes, that's my excuse. Oh, well, I didn't get enough oxygen when I was born. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But I almost died. And my mother almost died uh, when she gave birth to me. So uh, she tells me this story that when it was evident that I was going to live and that she was going to live, she was so grateful to God that she dedicated me to the Lord. And and none of my other sisters, I have five older sisters, and none of my sisters were dedicated. And you understand, five older sisters means they were trying to have a boy, right? Okay. (laughs) So I finally came, and I almost died, and I almost killed my mom. So she finally has a, a, a son, a number one son. She finally has number one son. And she's alive, too, and I'm alive. So she's super grateful, and she dedicates him to... And that is a significant thing, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, I mentioned my my father was uh, an abusive... He wasn't an honorable man, so he was, he was rather abusive, physically, verbally, and a womanizer. And it turns out that my grandfather, his father, was exactly the same way, Okay? So there was always this thought in my mom's mind that, ooh, I could take after my father and my grandfather. But she dedicated me, uh, just like an any church dedication, and she said, we are going to break this pattern. Okay? And he is destined for something totally different. Now, I am a faithful husband. I am not an abusive husband, and I am not a womanizer. So I am not anything like my father or my grandfather. And that is the work of the Lord, in some ways that's my own effort, but I would be amiss if I did not say that a big reason why I am turning out the way I am, uh, if it was I would not turn out the way I am if it were not for what my mother did. See, in dedicating me to the Lord, she set forward for me a destiny. And she has told me this many, many times. She said, "The arc and the great narrative of your life will be different from that of your father and your grandfather, and she gave that to me as my inheritance from her and If you ask my mother uh, Mrs. Chan, uh, what is the uh, greatest thing your son ever gave what's the greatest gift you ever gave your son ever gave to you it won't be like a sweater." or, you know, some other lame things that I bought her uh, in my time, she would say, oh, it was a Christmas card that he sent me one time. Uh, because he wrote this one thing on this Christmas card, and this one thing told to me that my son finally gets it. He understood what I was trying to do when I dedicated it to him. So, dedicated to him, so... On the bottom of the card, I must have said, Merry Christmas, Mom, or something like that. And I wrote this reference, 1 Samuel 1, verses 27 and 28. And that is the story of Hannah, the woman who prayed for a son, went a long time without getting one, and then finally gave birth to a son. And as a result, she dedicated him in the temple, and it says this in first 1 Samuel 1, 27 and twenty-eight. I prayed for the Lord I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. Verse twenty eight So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. So I wrote this on the bottom of this Christmas card, and I sent it to her, and she said, he finally gets it, <laughs> okay? This is what I wanted for his life. And I forget how old I was when I wrote this, but it made her the happiest woman in the world, okay? I guess what I'm trying to t- tell you folks is this. You know, some of you have dedicated your children, you know, in a ceremony, and, you know, we dedicate this child to the Lord. And maybe you made a prayed some prayer, some beautiful prayer outlining a picture of your child's life. May he become a warrior for the kingdom of God. May people be drawn to him because of the aroma of the Lord is on him or on her. And you describe this destiny uh, that the Lord downloaded to you for this child. I'm just gonna tell you if you can impart that to your child so that your child gets it, that could be the most important thing, okay, that you ever give to your child. You know, college education aside, you know, that uh, beautiful destiny is an amazing thing. And I feel like I've gotten something very, very valuable that my sisters did not get. Okay? Okay. Uh, so, to know one's destiny is a real important thing. It'll keep you steady in times of trial. And whether you were dedicated by your parents or not, The book of Revelation tells you your destiny. We're all going to the New Jerusalem. It's a wonderful people, place, and event. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we wrap things up here. Uh, Your face is smiling on every single person here. Uh, We'll part ways. Uh, Tomorrow's Monday, so that's another work week, and we go back to our routines And we ask now that what we have received we'll carry with us throughout the week. That maybe we'll go into next week maybe a little bit stronger in our faith than we were last week. We pray, Father, for protection against the enemies, the attacks of the enemy. We douse his arrows with the shield of faith. We pray, Father, that all the facts would not be as Well, the facts would stay with us, but more important, the touch of your hand on our hearts would remain too. And so, Lord, whatever it is that you do to keep your people, to maintain your staying power on their hearts and on their minds, do it. We give you the green light. We yield before you. Whatever you want, have your way with us in Jesus' name.